Well, hello there, Jody Vance in for Jill for one more day. She will be back in the spot on Monday. Now, welcome to the show in case you have lost track of the blur day. It is, in fact, Friday, April 16th, 2021. Uh, the reality now starting to sink in. I don't know about you, but it certainly is for me that we are in year two of this COVID-19 pandemic and uh, seeing record high transmissions, hospitalizations and worse. And it is at this time last year that the focus was squarely on long-term care homes, where this virus spread like wildfire, taking loved ones in groups. It is an horrific memory, and it is still triggering, triggering Sorry for many of us. Lucky enough to have our vulnerable seniors having survived in care through that, incredibly painful, and yet wouldn't it be so much worse if all of those lives lost didn't come with learning, that that we didn't take all that COVID-19 has shown us in our shortcomings at care homes and do something to fix what is so obviously broken. That is where we start today's show. Dan Levitt is the executive director of Tabor Village Long-Term Care Home, good friend of the program. Uh, Tabor's out in uh, Abbotsford. And Dan, I'm so glad to have you with us today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jody. Great to be here. Now, you wrote a guest piece for medicinematters.ca, and honestly, I needed Kleenex reading through it. There is like a level of relief that someone's saying all of this out loud that has the knowledge that you do, and yet how we have consistently tried to be there for our beloved seniors and yet feel so helpless in really moving the meter on this clearly broken system that you're, you're deep in there, hands-on, front lines, trying to make it better. It's been a challenging year, and as you said, uh, we're clearly in year two, and uh, we need to keep that spotlight on um, this challenge that we all have. And you've seen it from a family member um, with with your dad, and uh, there are so many stories um, that need to be told, and we need to remember those stories of the people's lives that were impacted, the lives that were lost, and the people on the front lines, the healthcare heroes, and make sure that we honor them, as you said by making the change that the system really needs to see to really right our seniors and create living environments that we all would be proud um, of. And we should have those, those new options available to us wherever we live. Let's unpack some of what really glaringly needs to change. What did we learn? What were the biggest top five, say, lessons of the, the, this COVID-19 pandemic? Because we already had shortages for, for care home workers and caregivers within our long-term care. And we dropped the F word. There's no facility here. Hopefully, it's a home. It's somebody's home. And that's an important piece of this. When we look at, you know, cafeteria-style food and, and you know, the bare minimums being pulled, pulled together in some spaces and places that are, are there to make a profit, uh, therefore, something is taken away from our elder. How do we fix those gaps, Dan? Well, I think one of the things is we can think about um, those those basic standards. And uh, the good news is that we're seeing this um, through um, CSA and through Accreditation Canada. We're seeing national standards being developed for long-term care, which is great news. So we're seeing that across Canada. And I, I do think we still have to have kind of that watershed moment of having some kind of a national um, program, a national long-term care system that really mandates um, the kind of things that we all would desire. So you know, that cafeteria food that you're referring to, um, where it's delivered and um, really the kitchen um, is kind of um, creates the regimentedness of our day where, where the care staff um, are pressured to get people out of bed to the dining room by eight o'clock to make sure they can have their breakfast. Um, none of us really want that kind of existence. None of, not, no workers really desire that. The people living no. there uh, want something much more customized. Um, so I would say that for sure, um, national standards is something that should come out of this and also just revamping those institutions so they feel like the home um, that we all enjoy when, when we're not institutionalized and to keep that going um, in, those, in those places. Uh, those would be two out of the five um, for sure. Uh, you mentioned the workers. Um, I would say that number three, um, these are healthcare heroes and for far too long we haven't treated them that way. Um, they've had lower wages. They haven't had the benefits. Um, they have lost um, many rights that other workers have. So I think we have to see that right across the board and make sure that we have enough 
people working in long-term care. I was listening um, yesterday to the news and heard that in Ontario, uh, Donna Duncan, who represents and speaks for long-term care in that province, um, they're very concerned about the shortage of healthcare workers in nursing homes. Um, meanwhile, we're hearing a lot about um, hospitals, but it's um, there, there isn't enough workers, for example, in Ontario, to, to discharge people from hospitals um, who into nursing homes. Maybe a fourth lesson, Jody, might be around infection control. Um, yeah. We really need to increase um, as an industry um, looking at um, about these living environments and making sure that they can withstand a pandemic. Um, we have seen um, not the best outcomes around influenza for, uh, for many years around vaccinations and, and around um, people contracting influenza. And maybe the fifth, the fifth lesson, I would say, which is a much broader one, is um, changing our communities where we live so that they're much more um, conducive to aging in place and making age-friendly communities and dementia-friendly. And my comparison would be if we were to think about the bike lanes that we've um, Im- implemented, and while we all welcome that, we all know how that's been a big shift in our cities, you know, taking away lanes of, of, uh, of bridges and taking away um, replacing railways lines with, with, with green lines. So that kind of change, we need to see something like that happen for seniors in the villages where we live so that it's easy to access the amenities we need and support that with home care. And I'm hoping that that kind of transformation would see that people can age in place longer where in their house and perhaps avoid or delay long-term care admission. We're with Dan Levitt, who's the executive director of Tabor Village Long-Term Care Home in Abbotsford, a, a, an outspoken activist for what needs to be fixed. What I love about your message, Dan, and in reading your uh, guest uh, article in medicinematters.ca, which I highly recommend for uh, listeners to seek out and read if if senior care is a concern of yours. And we will open up the phone lines uh, for your stories and concerns here because the conversation is the piece of this puzzle, Dan, that really needs to happen. There are so many discussions that happen behind closed doors. You know, I, I'm open about sharing my my father's diagnosis with Alzheimer's because when he was first diagnosed, he said, talk about this. Mm. He's a teacher, you know, lifelong mm. teacher, where other people, and, and rightfully so, don't want to talk about it, don't want the stigma that comes with it, don't want, you know, the the buzz around the neighborhood to be about what's happening with so-and-so and then having to take the steps in order to protect oneself from the shortcomings that come with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dealing with age-related dementia or any other of a, of a long list of illnesses that happen or uh, disabilities that come into play that are age-related. And yet what you're talking about just makes me feel so positive about where we might be moving to. We th- we've heard the stories about these communities that are being built that are basically like uh, safe spaces that that look like your normal leave it to beaver kind of neighborhood, but mm-hmm. it's built for people with dementia. They can still go to the local shop. They don't need money. The people at the shop know they have dementia, but it's what they do in their day. What I look with my dad is how much of his life has been stolen from him, not just because of COVID-19, but just in general. I think there are a lot of people that are feeling that frustration, Dan, and, and we do have a silver tsunami coming. Boomers are aging into this. Oh, exactly. And Jody, I appreciate how outspoken you have been on this issue, too, and that you've shared your story and uh, especially about the, the day that you got um, your vaccine. I think that, um, what we've seen a positive message has been um, ageism, which permeates through society and it does show up in long term care, shows up in our healthcare system. The fact that we were able and we stuck with it of putting those vaccines into the arms of seniors first in care and, and the healthcare workers and visitors. That was something that we should all celebrate and recognize that was the right decision to make an age-based uh, vaccination approach. And that was one of those signs for me that we're paying attention, that, we've got, that we have gotten this right, and that now let's continue that momentum and continue making seniors a priority. Um, you, when you mentioned kind of that, that, that dementia village concept, um, there's one in Langley, I know that Providence Healthcare is building one um, in Comox and at the old Heather site at um, St. Vincent's. And we want to see more of that kind of environment where seniors can age in place in a safe environment, protected, especially people who have Alzheimer's. There are a number of, of great sites, I think, where your dad lives is, is one of the ones that stands out. And there are others as well. We want to see more of that 
those communities being created that really um, combat isolation, combat loneliness, helplessness, and really give the person the kind of life that we all would be proud to have. And these environments are so exciting. Um, the seniors living in, 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 the, in some of those communities, and we've seen this in uh, different models that exist around the world, where they're still involved and continue to be involved in activities that they've always done. So if you right. loved cooking and baking like the rest of us, you can continue doing that. So we want to see more of that happen in long-term care. Jody Vanson for Jill this week with Dan Levitt, the executive director of Tabor Village Long-Term Care Home. And Dan has penned an article on medicinematters.ca about trying to fix what's broken in elder care in British Columbia. 604-280-9898 or star 9898. If you have a story of what needs fixings or an idea of what might help here. Brownco in Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for taking my call. Long-time listener. Uh, this topic Welcome. is uh, really hits home to me, and uh, it's really emotional for me to speak to you because okay. my mom was just diagnosed with this horrific disease. So, um, and in regards to your Langley facility that just came up, uh, we've been looking for a place for mom to put mom right now, and that facility in Langley, I must say, is incredibly expensive, and that is the one deterrent that we have in regards to putting her to finding a place for her to go. Yeah. Dan, I, I echo your sentiments, Bronco. I absolutely do. It's, it's one of the pieces of this puzzle that is so painful for families is sometimes you have to make choices for your loved ones based simply on how much money you have. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges is um, the choice that people have in services. So um, you either will accept a um, government-funded bed um, where you'll probably be spending around $3,000 a month um, based on around, say, $100 copayment, and it goes down depending on the income of the individual in care. Or if you're looking at a, at a private f- a facility or private home, um, like the Dementia Village in Langley, you're going to be spending basically the entire amount of cost for that, that um, bed, which is... Um, over $200 a day. So now you're probably 6000 up to $9,000 a day, depending on the actual community. So um, that is a challenge for all of us. And I think something also for us to think about society, about how do we um, value that time that someone lives in care? And uh, are there different finances that, that, are, that are around different funding mechanisms? And when we think about the length of stays, um, they're getting shorter and shorter. So someone in care might only live for an, a year and a half. So if, if you were to look at that cost for that period of time, it's a lot of money. However, it is um, a shorter ex- a time expense. It's not something that's, that's going to go on for decades. Unfortunately, we would love our loved ones to live that long. But the, uh, the amount of money that we'd spend at the end of life, um, it's so critical. And I think we can figure out different ways of supporting people like yourself. And I'm sorry about your mom's situation. I hope that things work out. The diagnosis is so painful. Being there for her through her journey is what she needs the most, Bronco. So stay strong and uh, and know that we'll keep talking about it here. Let's go to Linda in Surrey now. Welcome to the show, Linda. Hi, jo- it's Jody. Yes. Yeah. Hi, Jody. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, my mother's in a facility, and uh, I mean the facility is good and everything else like that. But, you know, my biggest complaint, and I have told them about this numerous times, like, you know, the food. The food is is not good. I mean, I've been there when my mom's, you know, we've made up the menu, and it's nothing but the menu that she's made out. It doesn't even come close. She doesn't even know what the hell she's ordered half the time. And she doesn't have dementia. So, I mean, she knows that it wasn't that she ordered. And then she doesn't want gravy, da-da-da-da-da, you know, and gravy is always poured onto everything. And I've talked to the um, culinary person, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, nothing ever gets done, though. You know, like it's just going on deaf ears. So you I know what, know and I... I feel your pain. I, I totally hear what you're saying, Linda. And Dan, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to assume that this goes back to a staffing issue. People are just trying to do what they can within long-term care homes, trying to trying to take care of individuals. The details are, yes, Linda, you're right, being lost in care. So I, I appreciate uh, we have lots of food complaints in long-term care. Um, um, We've um, struggled perhaps in in some ways of um, making sure that the food is not only meeting the medical and clinical needs of the individual, because our number one job is to make sure the allergies are recognized and make sure that the kind of diet the person needs based on um, their health condition and based on their ability to swallow. So we have about a dozen specialized meals right now at Tabor Village, for example, depending on the individual. And then on top of that, you want to serve food that 
still looks like the, the item that you expect it to look like. It's yeah. challenging to do if, if it's pureed. And then, then as well, we want to make sure that we have the individual preferences. And I love telling the story about when I went to the resident council at Tabor and I asked um, um, all these people, mainly, mainly who are women and mainly who themselves were phenomenal cooks in their day and probably still could, could continue cooking. And I, asked, I said, how was a borscht today at lunch? And um, I got um, mixed reviews. And I said, well, what about um, the cabbage? Was there, not, was there enough cabbage in the soup? Half the people said yes. The other half said no. Right. You can't please all the people all the time, right, Dan? I mean, but there is this want to make it better. And I love that message coming from you. And I urge our listeners who are engaged in this subject to go to medicinematters.ca. Medicine matters, all one word, .ca, and read Dan Levitt's piece there. I always appreciate having some time to chat. And I do always feel better after doing so because I feel like you are moving the meter using your voice the way you do, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. A pleasure. Anytime. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Now, most of us, I bet you can too, without hesitation, can recall the moment we were sent home from our work environments. Remember that? Remember your day? Remember your moment where you're like, "Uh uh-oh. For me, it was right after filling in on Charles Adler tonight on March 17th, 2020. It was St. Patrick's Day. Remember that Patty's Day. I was like looking around. Things are weird. That was the last time I was in the CKNW studios in the offices and seeing my colleagues. I'm speaking to you right now from the very fancy confines of my teenager's bedroom closet. <laughs> Work from home is glamorous. It is the quietest room in the house most of the time, except for when the neighbor starts pressure washing, but I digress. Uh, working for ho- from home has uh, been an adjustment for all of us for sure. Luckily for me, I can do my work from home. My partner, not so lucky. He was laid off last March 2020 and is still laid off from that job. Uh, Very tough. Uh, Somewhere in here is a silver lining that we together are getting through and perhaps figuring it out and figuring out, maybe this is true for you too, we're figuring out what we do and maybe more importantly, do not need in our lives. Our next guest is a familiar one. He's a number cruncher. He's a poll taker, the bringer of data. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. And today the topic is work from home impacts. Mario, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Jody. Uh, I am also out of closet, so there you go. We're both in All the right. same office. <laughs> it's it's quite something. Interesting what we can adapt and adjust to as individuals. Nobody could have imagined what a year and a half ago that this would be our reality. And yet, for some, the the work life balance of work from home has really been found. Yeah, it's really something because when we go back to the questions we asked two years ago before nobody knew what COVID-19 was, we had more British Columbians who said that they found the work-life balance elusive. Now that we ask this question in 2021, uh, the number has dropped to 45%. So it's an eight-point drop from the 53% who told us that they couldn't find that work-life balance. There are still some discrepancies. They are mostly based on generations, uh, but it's a good sign that in a way, the fact that we have a lot of people working from home is making them closer to that uh, work-life balance that they seek. Well, that's good news. Eight points is not an insignificant drop. Uh, British Columbians um, adapting and evolving and figuring it out as we go. What, what are some of the other questions that you asked in this particular poll? Well, one thing that is quite interesting is looking into the moments in which the office becomes part of our lives. Uh, The situations when you get an email that you need to deal with when you're with family and friends or you need to take a phone call when you're not supposed to be working anymore, working at night, working on weekends. And we see a little bit of a drop on some of these aspects, but not on all of them. You know, part of the situation is obviously you're not going to stay late at work if you're no longer going to the office. So that was expected You know, to see a drop on that one. But what's interesting is uh, the generations that are dealing with this more than others. You know, we have very few people over the age of 55 who said, I interrupted something. I missed out on a lifestyle engagement. I wanted to do something and I couldn't because I had to work. And it's something that is affecting millennials and Generation X more than baby boomers. So it's definitely a scenario where younger uh, workers uh, have a higher set of expectations put on them uh, from their employers and they want them to be available all the time. Right. So therein lies the rub. It's like if you are a millennial and you're being asked to work from home and your boss sends you a note at 7.30 p.m., you feel like, well, I'm still on the clock. I got to work. I got to show 
that I am engaged enough and hungry enough, if you will, uh, not in the literal sense, but in the figurative <laughs> sense, that I will I will do whatever it takes to keep this job because it is a competitive job market. Well, it's definitely something that we're seeing more with the younger generations, uh, particularly when it comes to the way the office uh, interjects uh, with your leisure. Uh, we also see that the uh, work-life balance is certainly more elusive for people who are aged 18 to 34. Uh, there's mm. 50% of them who say this is getting very tough, 47% for those who are aged 35 to 54, but only 32% for those aged 55 and over. So we could argue it both ways. The more you are in this world, the more you are likely to know how to balance your work. But also, if you're younger, you're going to be placed under a lot more pressure than if you're over 55. And Mario, if you're over 55, the likelihood of you having a little bit of savings set aside and thinking ahead, probably, you know, the opportunity to save even just by way of years on the planet, um, there is some security associated with that. Whereas with somebody who's been been trying to work their way into a position of savings uh, wouldn't have a buffer. I really feel well, for the people that don't have a buffer. Absolutely. This is definitely part of the situation. You know, we have been following uh, you know, questions related to housing for the past few years. And we continue to see it as a very important issue, particularly for millennials who want to get into the market and are having a very tough time. We've seen the real estate prices climbing over the past couple of months. So uh, it continues to be elusive. And that is one of the reasons for the over 55s to say, I can take it easy now. You know, even if everything, uh, you know, falls apart in the next few months, I still have that nest egg that is going to get me through this. Yeah. Uh, it's not the same if you're somebody who's aged 18 to 34. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and I'm with Mario Canseco. He's the president of Research Co. And some polling has been done most recently on British Columbians trying to inch closer to a true work-life balance. People can uh, read more about your research at researchco.ca. And it really is fascinating, Mario, when we dig a little deeper and sort of extrapolate, uh, opening up the phone lines to talk this through with, with people who uh, would like to chime in on work from home, whether that work-life balance is being found 604-280-9898 or star 9898 or you completely no no balance at all because cody just hit me up at jody at cknw.com if you're shy you can always email me jody with a y at cknw.com and cody says i feel so alone in any quotes me he says jody remember that moment when we all left our work and started working from home. And he goes, me, grocery store, head office worker, never offer one extra hour during the pandemic. No. And he has a little LOL with a laughing face. There are a lot of people who would love to have the problem of, of having a slowed pace to their work life, right? Definitely. You know, one of the things that we saw when we asked about office life or, or kitchen office life, if you will, is uh, what they missed about going to work. And, and we had people who said, you know, I do miss commuting. I have a fun time. I choose the, which radio station I want to listen to. We had people who said, I miss the camaraderie of the office as well. And, yeah. you know, this is definitely part of the situation that is going to be uh, really crucial to watch over the next few months. I think there's a sense that when the vaccination rates get, get where they have to be, we'll be able to do this again. But there's a delicate balance there between making the office more attractive and trying to tell people who have been having a lot of fun working from home that they have to punch the clock again. Right. When it's no longer a go home, stay home, but do you want to come back? It'll be very different when coming back to work is actually safe. Let's go to the phone. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Steve in Delta, thanks for calling in. What are your well, thoughts on thanks this? For take, thanks for taking my call. Of course. Well, first off, you know, this what's been going on has only been going on for a year. So we can't overdo that. This is how life is, you right. know. For the last 100 years, we've been, you know, going to work, talking to our coworkers, being on the site, being in the office. So we can't overdo it. I think we think we're too more too important, our little little life here. Uh, I, I personally need to be with people. I'm a social person. Most people are social people, our species. And I think sitting at home all the time, it might be a work-life balance, but I think the balance shifts the other way. You know, do you want to sit at home with yourself all the time looking at your cat? No. You know, I don't you know love if that's your cat a healthy or your dog either. <laughs> Steve, can I ask what you do? I, I don't know if that's what, a, what's that, sorry? I can, can I ask you what you do? It's a personal question. Uh, I, do, I do sales. Right. So very interpersonal. Yeah. And, you know, and like that's my personality. So, you know, some people might want to be at home and just look 
pet their cat all day long and they, they don't like people. But I think in general, uh, like I say, as a species, we have to be out there with people. And the work-life balance is more than making money. It's about friends, relationships, you know, talking about things that you want to get off your chest. It, it's not, I, I, I don't know how someone could survive just being in their condo all day long. I dig your perspective. Thanks for calling in. And you are a part of our community and having this conversation. So, you, you know, say say goodbye to your cat for just a few minutes here because you, you chimed in and it's great, Steve. Appreciate you calling in. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And Mario, I think Steve brings up a really good point. It's different for everyone, which is why you're polling is so important at Research Co. because you do see the different perspectives and, and the financial impacts and the social impacts. Work and life and the balance there is different truly for everyone. It is. You know, it's, uh, it's not a situation where you have a survey where everybody is in favor of one of the options. You know, I've, I've never had anything like that happen, no matter what the question is. Yeah. But Steve raises a very valid point. You know, part of that interaction when you are working in an environment with other people, when you're talking about what happened in the sitcom last night or you're commenting the news, that yeah. is actually part of your work-life balance. And it's one of the things that is missing because you can't get that same granularity, if you will, by talking about what happened in a Zoom call. I think we still miss, especially if you work within an office, you still miss that camaraderie of going to the water cooler and talking about sports it's one of those things that actually helps us have, have that work-life balance and being at home takes it away from us. Yeah, I'm hearing that. Okay, let's, uh, lots of phone calls, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call for you on your cell phone. Sean in North Vancouver, welcome to the program. Hey, Jody. Um, as a police officer, I, I have never had the choice. I, I've been at work um, ever since. We're 24-7, 365, and I'm thankful for it. I'm a single guy. My mom and my sister live in Halifax. Um, I can't imagine how challenging it would be for me, who after 21 years of being a police officer, I still like people, I still like what I do. I can't imagine how challenging that must be. I've got some coworkers who are okay at home by themselves, not that they have a choice, but I'm so thankful that I get to go to work but I can't imagine how challenging and difficult it is for others. Well, we thank you for your service. And I, I know you're a regular listener here on the program, Sean, and it, it takes a special type of individual to serve your community as a, as a police officer, a frontline worker, really of any kind. But everybody who's working essential right now is uh, deserves a uh, great honor from those of us who have the luxury of being able to work from home and to those who don't have the option of working from home and are struggling mightily to make ends meet. Like there are many pieces of this puzzle, as we heard the premier say, or in the throne speech, I believe it's like we're all uh, in in a similar boat, but some are in yachts and some are in leaky canoes right now. It's very difficult uh, to navigate for some people. Let's go to Anne in Langley. Welcome to the show, Anne. What are your thoughts on this? Hi, well, I work as a lawyer, and um, so what happened when COVID hit, the firm I worked for said, okay, fine, you can open an office, satellite office in Langley, and you can open it in my ha- in my home because I've got enough room. My assistant is now satellite in Chilliwack, and I've got to say, the money I'm saving is phenomenal. That's great. <laughs> like, that is great. I'm not- yeah, I know. I'm not renting an office. It's you know, and my my assistant has her own office set up. The only time we have any complications is if files have to be sorted. Yeah. So I don't I don't want to go back. Great perspective, Anne. Thank you for that, Mario. Interesting. That is a huge piece of this. The amount of money that individuals are saving for me, I can add up tens of maybe even a thousand dollars. I was going to say hundreds and hundreds of dollars in what I've saved in parking alone. Well, one of the things that we asked about a few weeks ago uh, was related to financial conditions. And the biggest saving uh, that a lot of British Columbians are seeing compared year to year, especially now that they're filing their taxes, is on transportation. You know, people who said, I only uh, put gas in the car twice over the past year when I usually do it 12, 15, 17 times a year. So uh, you got to take the good when it arrives. I guess that's the way of saying it. I love this conversation. I'm so glad that uh, you 
got it started, researchco.ca for all of the details and the data and and sort of the digging deeper into the work from home, work-life balance and, and, and how it's evolving year over year, Mario. You always bring such cool perspective and conversation starters to the table. So I appreciate you doing this today. Happy Friday to you. Happy Friday. We will keep them coming, Jody. Great to talk to you. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett on this Friday. And I should make a couple of programming notes here. Of course, you likely have gotten used to the fact that the Friday uh, COVID-19 new case numbers and data is a a media release on Fridays, not an in-person briefing. Uh, That is expected around three o'clock today. So be tuned in to the Linda Steele show. They will bring you those numbers uh, as soon as they happen. Also of note, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative Party leader, is going to join Linda this afternoon on the program in the three o'clock hour as well. So a lot happening coming up in the Linda Steele show in just a couple of hours. But, you know, when we wait each day for the data around COVID-19, are we getting enough of it? Other provinces, it seems, get their numbers first thing in the morning. They're extrapolated by not just neighborhoods, but like your city block. It's unbelievable how from province to province, the the data is different. And for some people, it's like, I don't need to know. But for others who are extrapolating some of the details around what our restrictions are, what our public health orders look like, uh, how we report on things, the data really does matter. And if you're in the industry, if you're in health, public health, in publishing, in media, in radio, in television, in news of any kind, really, you've been hearing the plea for more data. And the publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver and vice president of editorial at Glacier Media, uh, Kirk LaPointe, good friend of the program, you know Kirk, you read Kirk, you should if you don't, uh, has put together an open letter to the BC government pleading for more data. Kirk LaPointe joins me on the line. Kirk, thanks for doing this. Hi, Jody. We should be outdoors, though, shouldn't we? Yeah, never mind. Yeah, we're gathering indoors on the phone. Is that No. And that's just it. Like, what... People are screaming for, clamoring for the details, the the information behind the moves being made to protect the public here in British Columbia. And we all know that everybody is doing their best. We're trying to pull in the same direction. We're trying to follow the orders that we uh, have before us to, to save as many lives as possible. That's not up for uh, debate here. The debate is about the data. Can you Speak to your motivation at writing your most recent column where you uh, write the open letter. Yeah, well, it's been a central frustration for uh, for us uh, at Glacier Media in the year plus that we've been covering the pandemic. So there's nothing surprising or new in what it is that I wrote. I just pulled it all together. But we've been making these complaints uh, through our newsrooms uh, for the entire pandemic um, in terms of the lack of timeliness, uh, the lack of responsiveness to basic questions, I mean, nothing terribly serious in terms of uh, complexity, um, inconsistency on in the data, um, again, delays, uh, profound delays. You know, it, um, you know, I was mentioning that um, in, in the piece that if you live on Bowen Island, for instance, you still don't know a year later, if there's ever been a case there. Why? Because the data that we receive for Bowen Island is lumped in with West Vancouver's right. because of the yeah. way the regional health authority uh, aggregates the information. Um, if, you know, if, if you're um, trying to sort out uh, last spring where the, you know, where the, the problems were with long-term uh, home care, um, you were days, late in terms of getting the information for school exposures you're days late in getting information you know this there's no question that the government had strategy around public health and marshalling of that it had another strategy around um, economic activity no doubt about that but it did not seem to have a communication strategy and what it's done is it's left uh, us in media uh, kind of holding the bag on this one because our, you know, our audiences are increasingly upset with us that we're not giving them enough information. They can't understand why we're not reporting more, why we're not, why you know the material we're giving them is is so old, so stale, uh, so irrelevant. Why it's not so precise as it is, as you pointed out at the start of the, uh, of the piece that uh, in Ontario, 
you can know down to the city block where there are cases in your community. We can't get that even more blandly around large elements of the city of Vancouver, and we can only get it much later. You know, we don't get real-time data. So it's like a big central frustration here. And uh, I just felt that was enough. Like we, we have to actually, we have to tell the general public what our frustrations have been behind the curtain on this one. Um, because it's, it's, not, it, it's not to condemn the government and how it has handled the public health crisis. That's right. not the issue. It's, no. they're, they're distinct issues. It's, it's their handling of information and, and how frustrating it has been in order to serve the public in the way that we feel we need to. Um, to, to fulfill our duties, we want to play a part. We recognize how significant this is. We've expended huge effort, huge resources as media in order to, to do this. Um, and we can't, we can't do the full job. We just can't. And it's extremely frustrating, too, when our, our listener, our reader, our viewer will say, why didn't you ask that question? Why didn't you push for more information? And, and if, if only yeah. there was that well, understanding of that question has been asked or it was not allowed to be asked because you're only allowed one question, one follow-up. You never know when it's yeah. your turn to ask the question or it's like, I'll get back to you with that. We don't have the information. Or Kirk, the answer being, we don't have enough manpower to gather that data, extrapolate it and offer it to you. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of expenditure with our money as taxpayers um, on a lot of things right now and all of this. Yeah. And uh, communications professionals, I think, are doing reasonably well in all of it. But, but here's the other thing. I mean, our newsrooms have been blocked from gaining access to the government's own expertise inside. Um, you know, they, they are, we, we are sent all the time to communications people, to yeah, you know, basically public relations professionals in order to do that. And, and yes, you know, it gets polished up, right? And it takes a lot of time for them to frame uh, responses to us. So, you know, we're, we're often finding even two or three days for, for a really basic question. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's one thing. You pointed out at the top as well. I mean, we, we get our information at three and four in the afternoon, but we only get it, of course, um, we only get it five days a week, sometimes only four days a week, depending on whether there's holidays. Um, and, and we're the only jurisdiction I know of with this kind of crisis that is now not providing daily daily data on this uh, on caseloads on on uh, proximity and on trend lines and, and hospitalizations and deaths. Um, you know, it's it's absurd to you know to to go from three in the afternoon on Friday to three in the afternoon on Monday uh, in a not day when we are now into like more than sixty weeks of this crisis. Um, so, you know, the, that's just not right. The, the messaging at first, I think, w was soft toned. But but if you remember, you know, we were smug. We had like we had we were upset when we were getting to like 50 or 60 cases in the province. And um, and that was a very fine message to have then because, yeah, you know, what, relax, stay calm. But now we're into uh, cases in the four figures each day and hospitalizations that are really serious, ICU occupation that's very serious. We need to know much more than what we are finding out um, because people need to make informed decisions about their whereabouts, about their activities, about what they're prepared to do and not do in order to stay safe um, as we all get vaccinated. Jody Vance in for Jill today, and uh, Kirk Lapointe is my guest. He is the publisher and editor in chief of Business in Vancouver and vice president of editorial at Glacier Media. And Kirk, it would appear that others have similar feelings in term uh, in terms of uh, the plea for more data in your current column at BIV. Um, so the phone lines are absolutely lit up right now because the question was, do you want more data? And if so, what do you want to know? So Kirk LaPointe, you and I will uh, navigate through as many calls as we can over the next five minutes or so. Uh, 604-280-9898. Let's begin with Kelly in Delta. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you, Jody, and thank you, Kurt. Yes, um, my concern is I'd love to hear more data on, on a daily basis versus just every couple of days and then also um, never not knowing the weekend numbers until until Monday, but more specifically, I'd really like to know, and our mayor has been asking for this for quite some time, 
but is the variance of concern uh, more of a breakdown and where they're actually located specifically by numbers? So, for instance, how many in Delta, how many in Surrey, that kind of thing on a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you don't know in Delta uh, where what the numbers are in Tawasson or in Ladner or in North Delta. You don't know any of that. Uh, And it hasn't been provided all through the pandemic. And Kirk, there's a piece of this that is anxiety as well. I mean, going over that, like you say, from three o'clock on Friday until three o'clock on Monday, there are a lot of people just like tapping their fingers going, okay, what's going to happen on Monday? Where are we? What's the trajectory? What's this going to look like? This is already so stressful. In other jurisdictions, I mean, it's not, it's not that we should expect uh, Dr. Henry to be there seven days a week. That's, that's unfair to her. Um, But there are people who can substitute for her. Uh, There, there's all sorts of other ways to deal with this. Uh, and even, frankly, a statement uh, that would come out on Saturday and Sunday with enough depth to it would help us understand um, what we're dealing with um, in order to help us as reporters, as journalists, to get information out to the public as quickly as possible. It's uh, it's crazy to wait 72 hours each week, each week. That's a, for this. That would be a good starting point and really not that difficult, I'd imagine, to pull together because somebody is gathering together the information over the weekend Definitely. for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Danny in Vancouver, welcome to the show. What do you want to say on this? Um, well, first of all, I don't want to deny the fact that the virus is contagious, regardless of age or pre-existing health conditions. But in terms of more data, what I'd love to know is who, like, what is the age that people are actually dying from the virus? And do they have any pre-existing health conditions, even as far as, you know, diabetes or being overweight with obesity? And part of the reason why I want to know this is because if we're able to know more about who specifically is really critically in danger of the virus, maybe we can do a better part in trying to protect them, but also then serve the public who need to go back to work or, um, you know, just get on with more social and mental uh, stimulation for their own mental well-being. Yeah, look, Thank you, uh, that's, that's a, a great point. There are a bunch of data points there that I think she's, she's after that we don't really get. We don't even get what's known as the R-value data, which is the, the information on how many people on average are infected by individuals. Yeah. Um, it, it's, we don't include outbreaks in that, right? And, uh, and we release that information only once a month in this province. Um, other jurisdictions are doing that pretty much every day. Yeah, we get that on the the modeling day, right? That's the one mm-hmm. that we all l- clamor for that happened yesterday where we just devour all of the information or some of yeah, it goes but, over our heads because I mean, it's the overwhelming. The trend is over by the time we get it. Exactly. Right? And yeah. uh, that's the thing. And, and you have to be able to get this stuff pretty well in real time. Yeah, that's the problem with this. Okay, let's uh, keep going with the phone lines here. Is it Danny in Vancouver? That's up. No, sorry, it's James in Burnaby. Sorry, James. Uh, sorry, Danny was the, the caller right. we just had. Uh, James in Burnaby. Hi. Hi, uh, I just wanted to say I, I agree with the first two callers. I think that we're approaching it wrong, though. It's why isn't everything public? And then if there's some stuff that has to be kept private for certain reasons, then they'll keep that private. But is it why is the government's interest not to share all the information they have? It's almost a bit condescending that they have this information. And they'll be like, oh, we'll show you what we think you need to know. Isn't that just it just seems a bit off to me? Yeah, that's that's certainly the sound that we're getting from our audience, which is that they're feeling increasingly talked down to, uh, treated like children, and uh, and that's that's something that we're we're aware about. Um, the thing that's uh, that's very interesting is that only in British Columbia, from what I can detect, is the province basically hiding behind the issue of privacy, personal privacy, with a lot of this data. In other jurisdictions, they've found a way to deal with this, and they're. You know, you can still have very full disclosure and have protection of personal information. You, you, they're, not, they're not a zero-sum game. And that's the part of it. That when challenged on why can't we have more data, it comes back as, well, we're protecting the privacy of British Columbians. Yeah. And then we look no, across the country and say, that's... well, wait a minute. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that's, yeah. that's not the case. Yeah. Let's squeeze in one more call, Linda, and Delta, you're up. What's your question or what's your comment here? Hi. Um, Hi. I just wanted to agree with me. That's, that's about what I was going to say. And, um, yeah, this privacy thing just seems to be a British Columbia thing. I don't know why. But also the travel. Like, why are all these people going somewhere? When they, you know, like, do they have a, a figure of how many people that are coming in are actually coming in with the COVID or they're getting it two weeks later? Or is there more travel um 
statistics. That's the data that everybody is really looking for and clamoring for again. And that's like workplaces and in schools, right, Kirk? I mean, we could go down the list of things that we wish we knew. Yeah. And, and of course, one of the things that people feel is, is inconsistent is the fact that we've got planes landing at YVR all the time coming in from other countries. And, you know, and, and we're basically being told to not, you know, don't take a bike ride into the Fraser Health Authority you right. know, if you're in Vancouver. Um, that kind of stuff, I think, really gets in people's crop. It does. It doesn't line up. And it does. It feels unfair. I thank you for your time. And certainly uh, you should everybody have a read of the 925 words that really does lay out the frustration piece for the media wanting the data. And yet at the same time, uh, acknowledging the hard work of public health officials in British Columbia and trying to keep everybody safe. This is not a slam. This is a this is a serious and legitimate ask. Kirk LaPointe, thank you for your time, as always. Yeah, we're on the same side on this one, actually. We both want to serve the public. So there we are. Let's do it. Thanks, Jody. Good Here talk we are. To you. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Very much looking forward to this next discussion. One of the world's foremost vaccinologists joining us to uh, to help navigate where we are right now in this global p- pandemic and give some serious perspective on vaccines, vaccine rollout, vaccine efficacy and vaccine safety. The founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he is also the director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Peter J. Hotez is joining us on the line. Hello, professor. Hi, Jody. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm so excited to speak with you. Every time you and I have spoken over the years talking about vaccines and and certainly over the last 14 plus months, you've always been able to keenly uh, unpack where we are in our current pandemic scenario in British Columbia. I know you you have a great love for Canada. You might be in Texas, but you love Canada and, and definitely stay informed on what's happening here. Can you give us an idea of where you see us in our current pandemic in British Columbia? Well, you know, I think right now you've got the B117 variant uh pretty dominant right now and and you may even have another variant, the P1 variant that's that's also concerning. The key now is that we have good vaccines is to accelerate vaccinations as quickly as possible and 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 we know there's going to be a fourth peak we're in the in the middle of it. What we don't know is if that fourth peak is a small hill or whether it's a mountain and it all depends how quickly we can vaccinate and also how people can kind of keep it together with masks and social distancing while we're doing this. Uh, we have a lot to look forward to. I think we're going to be in great shape over the summer, uh, but uh, but it's a matter of getting to the other side of the rainbow, as some people would say. So, Professor, how much of an impact do you see the controversies surrounding the rare side effects being identified with AstraZeneca and with the J&J, the Janssen uh, vaccine, and how that plays into what might already have been existing vaccine hesitancy for some? So, I, you know, I think, you know, we still don't have all the evidence, and that's one of the reasons for the pause. Um, it, it's looking as though what happens is, you know, there's two major types of vaccines out there in North America. You have the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, and Moderna, and then you have the two adenovirus vectored vaccines from AstraZeneca and, and J&J. And it looks as though the, the, the latter, the, the adenovirus vectored vaccines, have the ability to induce a certain type of antibody that activates platelets and causes a terrible condition called cerebral thrombosis, which has uh, makes people very sick, and even a couple of uh, at least one individual in the J and J vaccine from the J and J vaccine has has died. The good news is it's extremely rare, but we don't know how rare is it one in a hundred thousand or one in a million or probably something in between. But the key now is to find out is there a specific demographic group that's particularly susceptible because it looks as though in the U.S. for the J&J vaccine, most were premenopausal women. And that's important to establish because if you can say that it's predominantly premenopausal women, and if you can even cut it finer and say it's premenopausal women who are in the immediate postpartum period or smokers or 
uh, on birth control, all of which we know can also facilitate thromboembolic events, then what you could say is, all right, it's just that population that we have to give a different vaccine to, and then we can vaccinate the others safely and resume vaccinations. And so that's the best possible outcome, I think, of all of this. If we can do a kind of a surgical strike, as I'm calling it, identifying just that very uh, well-defined population that's at risk for getting that cerebral thrombosis, then we and then we have we can have a much higher comfort level of vaccinating everybody else and resuming the program. And that just makes so much sense to me. This is why I love speaking with you. We're with Professor Peter J. Hotez, uh, who is uh, among many things. He is the director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your vaccine. Where are you? When last we spoke, I believe you were uh, just coming out of the stage four clinical trials. Yeah, no, we're, um, well, we finished uh, stage one and two. And I say we, we technology transferred our vaccine that we developed at Texas Children's Hospital to uh, an organization that was Biological E. They're one of the big vaccine producers in India. Yes. And they are scaling up to over a billion doses right now, which is really exciting. And it's looking really good in phase one, phase two trials that are have completed now. And and we're hoping that uh, potentially if all the stars align, maybe it could be released for emergency use into India by the by the summer uh, later in the summer. And then uh, we're looking at doing large trials globally. So and what's nice about this is there's no there's no upper bound to what you can produce. So they're making a billion doses. But, you know, you could it's because it's a high yield yeast similar to hepatitis similar to the hepatitis B vaccine, you literally can make billions of doses. And um, so we're also hoping to try to convince the United States to take this on because, you know, all the early development was done in Texas. So if we could convince the U.S. government to produce 4 billion doses, that would that would make a big difference. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure right now on the U.S. government to release all of its stockpile or a component of its stockpile for the world. And and what I say, we'll take a step back for a minute. You know, if you look at the number of doses we need for Africa, Latin America, and for the poor countries in Asia, there's 1.1 billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, 650 million people in Latin America, about four or 500 million people in low-income countries in Asia. That's 2 billion people. You're talking 4 to 5 billion doses. So even if the U.S. government and Canada together will release its entire vaccine stockpile tomorrow, it's still not going to make that much difference because we need, you know, the, all of these new vaccines, technologies, we still have limited abilities to really scale them up. And um, or as I like to say, you know, that when I think about those two mRNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer Biotech, they're great vaccines, but One's a Lamborghini, the other one's a McLaren. I mean, you're not going to make four to five billion Lamborghinis and McLarens. We need, we need uh, some Toyotas and Hyundais, and and that's what we're, we've done. And so, hopefully, we can get the U.S. government to to look into this, or even the Canadian government. This would be a great thing for Canada to do. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. We're with Professor Peter J. Hotez. You might have seen him on, well, just about every network across North America and around the globe. He is the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. And he has agreed to take your calls for the next uh, eight minutes or so. The phone lines are completely full and we want to get to as many people as we possibly can. So, Professor, thank you so much for doing this. Let's kick things off with Jen on Vancouver Island. Welcome to the show, Jen. What's your question? Thanks for taking my question. Uh, Mr. Hotez, can you tell us more about the research with regards to the efficacy rate of one dose, considering that the second dose has been substantially delayed? Well, I guess you're talking about uh, one dose of either the Pfizer, BioNTech, or the Moderna vaccine. And you know, and the studies in Israel showed that uh, while two doses were more than 95 percent, uh, a single dose was around 40 to 60 percent. Um, but they only looked in that study just a couple of weeks after the first dose. And there many feel that the level of uh, efficacy actually goes up 
over time, and some say as high as 80%. So it's it's not nearly as good as the two doses, uh, but there's something there. The problem that I have with the single dose is the um, it's it's the durability of protection is going to be not very high. I think you need that extra boost to to really continue the long-lasting protection. And then the other weakness is it's not as strong against the variants. So I'm a big proponent of really keeping that two-dose schedule, but others feel that we can at least delay the first dose for a while. I think the FDA approved that you don't have to give the second dose till 42 days, and that might be that might be a kind of a, a compromise. That rather than giving it after 21 or 28 days, you let it go up to 40 days before you boost. But I, I would feel uncomfortable letting it go beyond that because people will have a false level of comfort in terms of what they can do. It's it's a great vaccine in two doses. It's an okay vaccine after one dose. Interesting, because here in British Columbia, our provincial health officer has opted to get vaccine into as many arms as possible. I personally, as a a primary care, essential care for my dad, I was the 42-day duration between two doses. And three days later, our provincial health officer expanded that to four months because our supply is so limited. One dose in more people, is that better than two doses in fewer people given our supply here in B.C.? Well, you know, in the U.S., we have a lot of vaccines, so we, we have that luxury. Um, but, you know, given the, the the fact that the J&J vaccine is on pause, I, I guess it makes some sense. I just, but I guess my advice would be if you have a single dose, and this is how I behave, when I have my single dose, nothing changed. In other words, I acted as though I were was not protected, and, and that was a and so I wasn't going into the workplace. I wasn't uh, even thinking about a restaurant. I wasn't really interacting with people. And as long as you can keep that rule to yourself that you're, if you've got a single dose, you're not going to change any of your behavior uh, compared to when you were not vaccinated at all, you may be okay. But that, but you're still, you're, you're not as vulnerable, uh, but you're still vulnerable. That is an Excellent piece of information. Let's go to Mary on Vancouver Island. Welcome to the show, Mary. What's your question for Dr. Hotez? Um, why wasn't the clotting picked up in the clinical trials? Um, don't they trial um, a diverse population? Thank they, you, Mary. They do. The, the problem is this. It's the, the frequency of, of this is, as I say, it's extremely rare. So the, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine numbers are between 1 in 100,000 one in 250,000, the numbers for the J&J, it's going to go higher, but right now it's one in a million. And those clinical trials, phase three clinical trials, which are still quite big, are were around one, one in 30 to one in 60,000. So if it's a really rare event, you might not pick it up, or you might just pick up one case, and you can't really link it to the two. And that's why I always tell people it's not just doing the safety assessment in in the clinical trials, it's equally important to do a whole program of what's called pharmacovigilance monitoring. So in the U.S., the FDA and CDC, and I think Canada probably has something comparable, they have a pretty elaborate system to pick up rare events. And one of the things I like to say about the pause in terms of looking at the glass half full is that's how robust our system is. We can pick up a one in a million event. And, um, and, And I think that's that's people should take some comfort in that. Um, and and the, to give you the other flip side of that, you have also the Russian uh, Gamalaya Sputnik V or Sputnik V vaccine. That one is also an adenovirus vaccine, and one might anticipate that it also is doing the same thing. But the problem, what the Russians are doing is they're, they bypass stringent regulatory authorities and they're uh, connecting with countries that do not have robust pharmacovigilance systems. So we'll never know if if that gam- if that Gamalea vaccine is doing the same thing. We only have 90 seconds here, but I want to squeeze Russ from Vancouver in here. What's your question for the professor? Yeah, hi. Um, if people have one or two, well, especially the second vaccine, why 
aren't the governments not allowing them to go eat in restaurants and be indoors? Why wouldn't that just be a given that if you're able to show that you have the vaccines? Why are they still restricting people? Well, in the U.S., the recommend, I mean, some in the U.S., you can go to restaurants whether you're vaccinated or not. But I, I think the point which you're really asking is if you're vaccinated, okay, uh, why, why not? Why can't I just go about my normal daily routines back like it was back in 2019? And I think the answer is it will be that way once we can fully get close to full vaccination. Then the level of virus transmission goes way down. I think the thinking is, as good as the vaccines are, they're not perfect. Um, so they give dramatic reductions in, um, in infectivity. But with this B117 variant, that with there's so much transmission going around, uh, they're so much more transmissible than anything we've seen before that they want to kind of get this under wraps first before they do that. So once virus transmission comes down and, and, a, and a very high percent percentage of the population of Canada, the U.S. becomes vaccinated, then we basically get back to something resembling normal. So it's a matter of keeping that peak down, and, and there is still some vulnerability with this level of transmission. And we will get there, and we will get there together. As you said off the top of our first segment, that there is hope on the horizon, on the other side of this rainbow. It's just up to us to keep this rainbow as flat as possible by sticking to our health orders until the majority of the population and, in fact, the globe is vaccinated. Professor Peter J. Hotez, as always, I appreciate uh, stealing just a little of your time. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, real honor, Jody. All the best.